Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, August 17, 2016. This is episode 1851 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a returning guest for you. This is uh, Chris Haynes. He was on before talking about the same subject, tiny house uh, living and off-grid living. He is the uh, author of a new book called The Tiny House Engineer's Notebook, Volume 1, that is. Uh, it's all about off-grid power, and it's written in a way that even somebody like me can understand. And uh, it's quite useful and quite handy. Chris started out living in a 66-square-foot uh, tiny house and uh, eventually built a 252-square-foot uh, tiny house. It is a foundation-built home, all legal-like, uh, under the auspicious government of Massachusetts, by the way. And uh, so he's uh, been in that house now for three years. He's learned a lot. He's had some experience. He's going to talk about all of that with us today and more. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode for our history segment today. The year is 1851 because, well, the episode's 1851, and we have three from Alex Rugg. We have Speak of the Devil, Moby Dick, and the Wrath of Khan. That's all one. That's not three. Speak of the Devil, Moby Dick, and the Wrath of Khan. I also have Support, Your Australian Gold Rush, and I have Record Rain in Iowa. Before I read any of those, how about in other news? Jesse Williams starts the first assembly line cheese factory this year. The New York Slimes, I mean Times, is established. And Isaac Singer invents the continuous stitch sewing machine in this year, 1851. Uh, Alex says of this, the Singer's elegant design allows it to be mass-produced and available for the home. No electricity required. It works on pedal power. My grandmother had one of these. Yes, Alex, my grandmother had one, too. She had one of the pedal power ones, and she had an electric one, and my other grandmother had an electric sewing machine. What this made me think of when I read this, when I was a kid, everybody's grandmother had a sewing machine. There was a few of the, the pedal power ones still around, some of them antiques and stuff, what have you. But everybody's grandmother had and knew how to use a sewing machine. I wonder what the per capita ownership of sewing machines is in America today compared to, say, just 30 years ago. That would be an interesting thing to know. Anyway, the the, the segment I'm going to read for you is Speak of the Devil, Moby Dick, and the Wrath of Khan because I like a lot of things about it, and I think there's a teachable moment in this that Alex did not touch on, though it is quite obvious, and that's probably why he didn't. Anyway, in the 1820s, two sailors are found adrift in a small whaler. <clears throat> they are delirious with thirst covered in salt, sores, and blood, and they uh, as they nod on the bones of their dead... They told a story of sinking in the, the sinking of the Essex after it was attacked by a mighty sperm whale. From this tragedy comes Herman Merville's magnificent novel, Moby Dick. Captain Ahab has lost his leg to the white whale, Moby Dick. He sets out with his crew from Nantucket to seek out sperm whales to produce clean-burning lamp oil worldwide. Kerosene is not yet practical. However, Ahab has an additional purpose. He promises a piece of gold to the first man to put three harpoons into the white whale that took his leg. The crew cheers, but Mr. Starbuck is worried. This is more than simple revenge. It has become a religious obsession. Ahab shall smite the devil and seek out Satan in his lair. If his chest were a cannon, he would have fired the shell of his heart against the white whale. I'm paraphrasing a line out of the novel, but here's a direct quote that will be familiar. To the last I grapple with thee, 
From hell's heart I stab at thee. For hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. Captain Ahab as he confronts Moby Dick. This is a great novel. Alex, uh, Alex's take is this is a great novel. Even today, you can download it for free from Gutenberg. But if your prefer- preference is film, the 1957 movie starring Gregory Peck and a very young Richard Basehart is excellent. The original story of Essex came out in a movie in 2015 called In the Heart of the Sea, directed by Ron Howard. I haven't seen the movie, but the trailer looks terrific. As for Star Trek fans, no doubt you recognize the quote from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. In a lot of ways, The Wrath of Khan is a rewrite of Moby Dick with a direct quote from the novel as Khan sets off the Genesis device. The Genesis device looks suspiciously like a harpoon, and apparently the USS Enterprise substitutes for the white whale. Good stories never die. They are simply remade into science fiction classics. By the way, David Weber has used the Horatio Hornblower novels as a loose framework for his Honor Harrington science fiction series, You can download the first book in the series for free from Amazon. Great stuff. Um, so my take on this really is the lesson that we can learn from stories like Moby Dick is that an obsession of hatred is one that will destroy us. There are some people in the world that I have a lingering animosity for. I, I wouldn't call it a hatred at this point. But people that, let's say, at one time I had true hatred for And a few of those people have attempted to reinstall themselves into my life over the years. And my response to them was never malicious or malignant in any way. It was simply, there is no place for you in my world anymore. There are so many people that are living with anger that have a white whale that is a person in their life or a thing or an event or an entity. Uh, in their life that they have such hatred for that they think of it daily. It is an all-consuming problem of hatred for them. And it does you no good. It does you no good. There are a few people in this world that when I look back at how much hatred I had for them, I think to myself, you were justified in your hatred, but the greatest thing you ever did for yourself was to release it. My take by Jack Spirico. With that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com to learn more. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. And with that knocked out, I want to introduce our special guest today, Mr. Chris Haynes. Hey, Chris, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, we had you on, I guess, almost two years ago, um, and so you've been in your tiny house for quite a while now. We want to talk about a lot of things that have changed over those years, but before that, I mean, a lot of people probably never heard that interview that are listening today, so could you kind of tell us about, you know, your background, what you you know did professionally, and what got you into, like, wanting to live in tiny houses and live off-grid, and what made you make that decision? 
Yeah, well, back in, no, say 2008, uh, I began looking for some land because I really wanted to live debt-free. And I was looking at the tiny houses because I thought that uh, a tiny house would be affordable. Let me do that. Uh, the goal was to, you know, live on a piece of land that I bought and then build the house uh, with the money that I was saving from not living in a, a big grid-connected house. So uh, I did that. In 2010, I found nine acres in uh, Massachusetts, Western Mass, with conservation land all around. Uh, it was really cheap compared to some of the other land that's in Massachusetts. Most lots here start at 60000 and go up to 120 or, or even more. It's ridiculous. And I found one for, you know, $2,000 an acre, and uh, I'm pretty happy about that. So I built my 66-square-foot house, put it on site, drilled a well, put some solar panels on it, and then I lived there for 18 months. Uh, very illegally, while I did all the work on the current house that I'm in, Ill- illegally on my own property, yes. And uh, so the current house that I'm in now is a 250-square-foot house. Uh, it sounds small, but it's you know it's got a 64-square-foot loft, and it's a 12-pitch roof, so there's a lot of loft space. Uh, it's got a 90-foot screened-in porch, so I have actually quite a bit of space, even though the house sounds small. Uh, it's built on a shallow frost-protected slab, not on wheels like some of the tiny houses that you see today. Uh, it's super insulated. It's got R40 walls, R60 roof. Uh, does very, very well. Uh, I heat it with wood. I power it with a couple of small PV panels and a battery. Uh, ridiculously simple off-grid power system. Uh, you wouldn't know that I'm an electrical engineer, but uh, I am. And then, of course, I back it up with like a Honda EU2000, just one of those little bulletproof uh, portable generators. And uh, it's been great. I've uh, been here a couple of years now, actually going up with three years at this point. Very cool. And, you know, you've been through uh, a hell of a winter, um, snowpocalypse, I guess, right? And, oh, yeah. And uh, then you had, like, a really brutal uh, summer. How How's things been, you know, living in an off-grid tiny home during that? And did you make any changes through those times to uh, make your life a little more comfortable? Yeah, I would say living in it, the, the insulation package that I put on it is really the key to everything. Uh, it's not a typical, you know, most, most houses you frame them up and you shove pink fiberglass in the cavity. And if you're in a cold climate, usually it's a two-by-six wall cavity and you put, you know, R19 in there. Instead of that, I actually put four inches of rigid foam on the outside and the R19 in the wall cavity. So it gives me R40 for walls and R60 for roof. And I can tell you that uh, I basically heat the house with a very, very small wood stove. It's a, a Yodel 602. And I fill up a Homer bucket on nights that are eh, 15, 20 degrees. I probably burn one Homer bucket of wood. On uh, the really cold nights, uh, you know, when it gets down to like minus 10 or minus 15, I might burn two Homer buckets, and I probably try and make sure the wood stove burns the night. I load it up really good and turn it down. Uh, but it's it's great. Uh, even when it's not running, the house still uh, retains its residual heat and stays above 50, 55 degrees, even on the coldest winter days. In fact, I went to a Liberty Forum a couple of years ago, and I had to be away for 48 hours, and it got to be minus 10 one night. I came back, and the house was still over 45 degrees. So insulation and air tightness has been a really big, big thing. Uh, and then the other thing that I did, uh, mostly for winters, because uh, batteries don't perform so well in the cold winter, and I put my batteries outside in a metal box because I just didn't want them inside the house, and uh, they just didn't work that well. So this year I actually uh, took them out of the metal box and I built a sort of a wooden box that I use as a shoe rack, but inside of it contains uh, two deep cycle marine batteries, and uh, that works great. So I think a tip I give to people is, you know, keep your batteries heated if you can do it. Yeah, definitely. Um, can you talk a little bit more about maybe dealing with the heat on, on things? That's that's always been my concern with off-grid is just, you know, Heating stuff is is one thing. Keeping it cool is another. Yep, that's right. Um, 
in my case, I have unlimited supply of firewood because I'm, I'm in the middle of the woods. Uh, and so my problem was it's going to be cooling since I have no electricity really to power eight ACs except for a generator. So what I did is I left all of the trees around the house so that it's partially shaded pretty much all, all parts of the day. And then I've also got, you know, windows down low and windows up high. So I open up the high windows and leave the, the low windows, you know, open. So you get natural convection through the house. So the air naturally tends to convect through. And then when it gets really, really muggy, like, uh, in fact, the, this has been the first time in the last almost three years now that I've had to run the AC. So I've, I've never pulled the AC out of its Tupperware bin that I store it in until this week. And I just installed it in a window, and I do pretty much the same thing I do with the wood stove. I turn the AC, I crank it on for maybe an hour off the generator, cool the place down, and it coasts for, you know, the next four or five hours. And, of course, by 10 o'clock at night, the temperatures are down, and so you don't really need the AC anyway. So uh, that's... Pretty much, it works the same way as heating. Yeah. Uh, again, I just I, every time I hear people say that, I just think, well, you live in Massachusetts, and I know you think your summers are hot, and then you say something like, well, after ten o'clock at night, you don't need the air conditioner, and then I laugh. Well, uh, yeah, that's right. This is only going to work for us up here in the new, in New England. I think even probably as far as maybe Ohio, this probably still wouldn't work. So yeah. you have to come up with some level of. Something to deal with with the heat. I don't know. I mean, people used to live without air conditioning in the South, but um, not in small houses, though. They have really high roofs. That was one of the techniques they used in these. Like, if you find the old estates down here. Um, yeah, well, they, they use natural convection. It's the same same yeah. kind of technique. Cool air sucks in from the forest and the low windows and you know, exits. The hot air exits out the high windows. So you've been involved with the tiny house thing for, like, eight years now. How have things changed during that time? Well, the first thing I've noticed is that uh, the houses are getting larger. I mean, we're seeing some just, I almost consider ridiculously sized houses, up over 200 square feet. People are building them on, uh, you know, uh, fifth-wheel trailers. Um, and some of them are oversized loads. You almost need a, a permit to tow them down the road. And I, I really would worry about, you know, hitting a low branch or a low wire in some of them. Um, that seems to be getting popular. Uh, we seem to be drifting away from sort of the original intent of, you know, tiny houses were supposed to be simple, small little things that you could live in cheaply. And I think we're just sort of blurring the lines now between, you know, single wide trailers and tiny homes. And I'm not sure if that makes financial sense or not. I guess that's up for everybody to decide. Uh, the thing, the thing we're seeing sort of more officially is that uh, building codes have changed. It used to be that the building codes required you to have one room that was 120 square feet, and that's now gone in the latest building code. And not everywhere has adopted it yet, but eventually over you know, the next couple of years, everybody will adopt it. And the only rule is going to be uh, the minimum room size is 7 feet by 7 feet, and you can exclude bathrooms and kitchens from that. So under those rules, you could build a really, really small house, and it could be on a foundation. It doesn't have to be on wheels anymore. Uh, most people built on wheels to get around the building codes, but... The building codes aren't an issue. Uh, I think zoning regulations have become an issue more than the building codes now. I was going to say, because you're talking about national building code there versus local zoning correct. tax correct. creed, basically. It's, and that's what it is. It's, it's, it's uh, property tax creed is, is the best way to describe it. I would, I would agree with you there. I, I think we're, we're seeing some of the zoning boards are starting to uh, lighten up a little bit. Like in California, there's a couple places now that have said, look, if you've got a big house and you want to make a pad out back and have you know electrical connection, a sewer connection, and water, you can put a tiny house there legally. We'll give you a special permit for it. Mm-hmm. So that's you know on the good side. Um, most people kind of tend to live on the gray zone of being legal or not. Which is, you know, good and bad, and uh, it is bad in some cases, though. Like in Tennessee just recently, the zoning board there 
they had somebody who I think was you know, living sort of illegally and wanted to get it changed, and it backfired. They actually passed an ordinance that said, sorry, houses must be 600 square feet or, or more, and you can't be here. So um, they're not accepted everywhere, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I looked at a piece of land not far from here just out of curiosity, and uh, it wasn't really a big consideration for me about whether I could put a tiny house on it, but it was out in the middle of Parker County, which is fairly rural, more rural than I am. And, I mean, there's, like, cow fields all over the place. And, and so I'm just, you know, wondering, what you know, 30 acres that close to me, maybe there's something I can do with it. And I, I look at it there was for restrictions. There was one restriction. Minimum house size, 2,250 square feet. All right. That's just trying to collect taxes. That's and that's what I'm saying. Doing. It's tax greed. That's pure tax greed because there's... I mean, literally, it is surrounded by cow fields. There's not another house there. But if you want to build a house there, you have to have a minimum of 2250 And that, that has to just be the county going, we want money, money, money. I think that's short-sighted, too, because you have to look at it both sides of the, the, the balance sheet. You have to look at expenses and income. And if you think like me, I have no kids. I have a dog. Yeah. And so... You know, how many expenses from the town am I taking? Nothing. I'm not using any more police. I'm not using any more fire. I'm not using no kids in school. So all the money they take from me is income for the town. So yeah. why wouldn't you want four or five or six of me coming to town to you can just basically get free money? Well, and then if you look at it this way, that 30 acres is completely undeveloped right now. There's there's nothing on it. It's probably yep. being leased to some of the, the cattlemen that are around it and green grazed a couple times a year. And so it's probably either completely unapproved or agriculturally zoned. Yep, and no so they're getting nothing out of it. So if they did sell it to somebody that put in a residential structure, even if they kept it ag, you know, they're going to still have to pay tax on the, the non-ag portion of it. They would still get more money. Yep. Where by doing that, you're limiting who would even buy it because there's a lot of people that maybe aren't tiny house types but are going, what the hell do I need 2,200 square feet for? You know, I mean, there's plenty of people that would build a thousand square foot, eleven hundred square foot. There's tons of production model stick in brick homes out there that are in that like nine hundred to thirteen hundred square foot range. That if you have a couple and a couple kids, it's plenty of space. Yep. Doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make sense to me either. So I've also seen some stuff going on with people building tiny houses for the homeless. Do you think that's any kind of a solution? Because being marketed as though it is. Yeah, I'm. I'm really. I don't think it's the greatest idea. You know, I think tiny homes already face an uphill battle. I mean, how would you feel if you had, you know, a 2,000 square foot McMansion-ish kind of home, and somebody said, "Hey, I'm going to put this little house in the back of you because, you know, because I want to." I think you'd be a little hesitant to do that, and I, I think that uh, I think that's a, that's a problem around the country. We need to gain acceptance. Uh, with the time for tiny homes, people just need to look at it and say, "Oh yeah, that's a nice little cute cottage that you know some older folks live in or some single person lives in." And once that's accepted, then you know maybe you can go down the road of homeless people, you know, living in them. Uh, but I think you know if you want to talk about just efficiency of materials, I think micro apartments is a much better solution. You know, if you think about what an apartment is, you know, you got six walls, you know, four walls and two ceiling and a floor. Uh, you know, two of those walls are shared with the apartments on either side of you, so you're, you know, being more yeah. efficient with the walls. The ceiling is the, the apartment above you. The floor is, the, you know, ceiling of the apartment below you. You know, why not go the, down that road? There's a lot of work being done there. Uh, and then also, you, if you're homeless, you are then close to services that you might need, close to work. You know, you'd probably be closer in the, in the middle of a big city. And, you know, I just think that's probably a better solution. 
uh, you know, telling somebody that a homeless guy is going to be living out in your backyard in a shack is never going to happen. You're going to see zoning ordinances passed, and we're just never going to get tiny houses uh, yeah. anywhere. Yeah, I think another, like, the way I'm looking at that is, okay, let's say if we lived in a world without 4,000 government programs, then maybe, right? But we have mm-hmm. all this government money being wasted, and while I'd prefer that they got nothing, they're, they're getting something, so I'd rather them do something useful with it. So when I look at that problem, if you said to me, Jack, do you develop a program to solve, you know, homelessness, I'd say, well, you have abandoned buildings in every major city in this, this country, Yep. And those buildings are fine, usually industrial, very strong structures, and building apartments within those buildings and then requiring maintenance to be done by the people that live there while they live there so that they're maintained and they don't become slum projects and putting some sort of condition upon how long and what your exit strategy is and using that to address the homelessness situation makes a hell of a lot more sense to me than a bunch of t- tough sheds being you know shoved into residential neighborhoods where people that live there don't want them. Yeah, and then you can also take advantage of the community. If you have a bunch of homeless people living in one of these you know old factories, you can then somebody who has to stay home maybe can't do work, but maybe they can do child care for the Correct. community, and other people can go work. And it, you can actually you know use it. people can help each other in the community there. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot there beyond structures. I think a lot of our homelessness program. Our problem in this country isn't just a, a place to live problem. I think it's yep. a, a very deep psychological issue for some of these people that there are options they won't take. Uh, sometimes because of drugs, and sometimes just they need serious counseling and help to get their lives back together more than a a dwelling. That there are dwellings available if people will follow programs that are designed to help them. Not maybe as many as there should be, but there's right now. I think there's more of a, a, a failure to get people into programs than there is places for them to go, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you've three years in your house now. If you built a new one, are there anything you would do differently? Um, I probably would build one that wasn't legal. I'd just go live illegally somewhere on a piece of land. Uh, I spent way too much money on this thing. I mean, it, it's 100% legal. It's you know got a septic system that's big enough for a three-bedroom house, so I had to do it because the state forced me to. Because you needed that, yes. Yeah. I needed that. Yeah. Uh, and I needed you know, a real water well that's drilled you know, 205 feet down. Uh, I, I think if I did it again, and I may, uh, somewhere up in New Hampshire, I probably would go with you know shallow well, composting toilet, you know, gray water pit for uh, for gray water, and maybe rainwater collection or, or whatever. Yeah, who knows? But I, I, I still think I'd build. I wouldn't ask permission to build another one. Uh, having you know been through the, it, it sounds like it's very stressful living in the middle of the woods, waiting to get caught. But uh, once you do it, it's not as not that stressful as long as you're smart about it. So I think I'd just go live illegally somewhere else. I think in some instances that can work because most of what code compliance and things like that does is complaint driven right yes. it, it, so if you are actually living out in the middle of the woods where you don't have neighbors really that are looking at what you're doing and nobody complains not only does the the city the county whatever not have the resources to come bother you they don't have anybody to tell them to come bother you and the people that do that job some i've met one or two that really are just like this is the perfect job for you you are an asshole and it's like, you're like the, I don't know if you're the kid that was picked on in school and now you feel like you have power or what, but most of those guys don't want to be the way they have to be. So they don't go out of their way to bother people. Yep, yep. 
But when they get called in, they have to do it by the books because if something goes wrong, it's their ass. Yep, that's right. So very uh, interesting. Go ahead. An interesting thing that happened uh, to me, which I, I it's shocking. Uh, so when I first came on the property, uh, the first thing I did since I, I had to sell my, my big grid-connected house, I had to put a mailbox on it so that I could get mail. I had no way to get mail. And so I shoved the mailbox out there, and it was out there for maybe, I don't know, two weeks, no more than two weeks. And so then I had to go to the uh, the Board of Health to get a well drilling permit, of course. And um, as I was sitting there talking to the guys for the well drilling permit, somebody walked in, and uh, he said, hey, how you doing? My name's Chet. How's everything? And um where, where are you, you know, where are you going to be drilling this well? Where, where are you going to be building your house? And I said, I explained to him where it was, you know, down next to the fire pond and all that. He goes, oh, you're the guy who put that new mailbox in down there. <laughs> and, like, how did you notice that there was a new mailbox on this little back road, you know, through the middle of town? Like, they just, they, little things stick out in people's minds, I yeah. guess. And so it's much easier to get caught than you think. But it's, I think it's more important to have people who don't care what you're doing than it is to to hide, I guess, in plain sight. Yeah, I think another thing, like, there's a lesson right there for the person that can adapt to it. Um, don't have a mailbox. Don't have Get a mailbox. a P-box. Yep. P-box. A P-O box, right? Yeah, um, exactly. And just, you know, once a week, you go to town, you get your mail. I mean, yep. like, we do that for the business right now because we don't like doing business here. You know, we have a, a mailing address for people to mail stuff to when it's business-related. And it's also nice for us because we have, like, the whole property's perimeter fenced, and we have dogs that will eat the mailman, and they finally have figured that out. So when we have stuff that you know requires a signature or something like that, we just have it delivered there. And I think we pay 12 bucks a month for it. <laughs> That's not too bad. So no mailbox, no, you know, just one less thing to be seen. That's uh, Yep, there's definitely a lesson there. Yeah, there's definitely a lesson there. Um what advice would you give to someone thinking about a tiny house? Would you recommend off-grid living? Yeah, absolutely. I think off-grid is fine. You, you do need to make some lifestyle changes. You know, if you're not the kind of person who can make the lifestyle changes, just go on the grid and don't worry about it. It's not, you know, it doesn't cost you that much to have electricity. Um, but as far as like for tiny house building, the advice I'd give to people is I would tell them to stay away from the trailer-based tiny homes. They're cute. Uh, you know, they're kind of a way around the codes, but really not a way around the code. They're not legal in, you know, 99% of the country, pretty much, even though you can get, you can get away with it for some time. Uh, and also they just from a value proposition, sort of, you know, some of these trailers are $7,000 just, you know, to build a, a kind of a, even a small, tiny house. You know, right now I can point to two pieces of land up in New Hampshire that are two building lots. One's one acre, one's two acres. They're selling for $10,000. And I bet if you walk up with a you know nine thousand bucks, said give it to me, he'd probably say, okay, let's go to the title company and do it. Yeah, you might walk in there with eighty five hundred dollars and twenty dollar bills and go, have you ever seen eighty five hundred dollars and twenty dollar bills before? And okay, yeah, because a lot of these guys, you know, they ask, they know they're not going to get what they're asking. Exactly, exactly. And so then once you've done that, you then go on the land and there's standing timber. You go buy a sawmill, you cut that timber up, and you get yourself enough wood to build your house or most of your house. You get firewood for like three years out of it. You're going to get a big pile of wood chips. And what does it cost you? 11000 bucks. So you got you could have 11000 bucks with land, wood, wood chips, and firewood, or you could have a $7,500 trailer and still have to buy stuff. And you're and, still going to overbuild the capacity of that trailer. Yes, exactly. And you're not going to have a place to put it. It's going to be a liability. Where do you yeah. go to your parents' yard? You have to pay for storage for it. You know, at least this, now you have a piece of land that you could camp on if you need to. Or, or you could just turn around and sell it if you just couldn't, can't do the project. So yeah. I would I would avoid the, the trailer-based ones. And these days with the building codes, there's no reason to do a trailer-based one. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I really think that is what it was a response to. And now it's gotten stupid. And I look at it and go, you know, if you're going to go through all that, then, you know what, there's really nice used fifth-wheel RVs out there that are completely self-contained that are built on trailers designed to haul their weight if yep. you're, you're going to take that approach. Because when, when I look at it, I go, you know, you live in a 250-square-foot house. I'm going to tell you I, I respect it. I get it. ain't happening for me. But if I was going to build something myself, I'd probably build something in the, you know, if I was going to kind of do the homesteading in the woods type thing, 500, 600 square feet, um, just based on some of the needs that we have. And I, I think that's still a reasonable size. That would never fit on a trailer. No, you know, it never. Just, it won't. And I think the other thing, I don't. here's what I like about trailers. 200 square feet in a house that's mostly square is a hell of a lot more practical than 250 square feet in a house that's a long, skinny rectangle. Yes. And I think that there's just a flow issue. And, I, I, you know, I don't want to crap on anybody's dream. If that's what somebody wants to do, fine, go ahead and do it. But I watch these shows all the time, you know, the Tiny House Nation and whatever. And yep. 90% of them they build are built on these trailers and, and what have you. The trailer almost always has a failure. Like, I don't know if it's just drama, because they build fake drama into it all the time. Yep. There's always a tire going out or something. And like, yeah, of course, that tire's not rated for that kind of weight. Um Then they always have like trouble getting it where it's going to go. And then the person says, well, I'm going to travel around the country with it. Well, you, you almost lost it three times getting it into the one spot. That's And it's what you said. Most of the time it ends up being, I'm going to find land, I'm going to find land. By the end of the episode, they put it in their parents' yard. Yep. Right. And it's just like, this doesn't seem like it, it really works. And, you know, a site-built home has a certain safety aspect to it. Now, you tell me, this is the other thing I think for people that are thinking of small house living, tiny house living. When I watch these shows, and yes, I get it's fake reality TV, but there's always some nonsense. I, I need a place for my ski gear, right? I need a place for my, uh, you know, my, uh, all this, some kind of random crap. Everybody always has some random crap they have to build space into the house for. You know, you can go to Home Depot and get an installed, you know, 10 by 12 shed for about 2,500 bucks. And it would just seem to make sense to me that if you had that kind of little homestead property, for stuff that's not stuff you use every day, do what anybody else with the house does. Get a daggone tool shed and put your non-house stuff in there. Yeah, I, I agree. In fact, Or my, project this, you know, my you, project this summer is to build a 10 by uh, 18 garage For just for that thing, just so I can have tools, I can pull my car in there, change my oil, whatever. 10 by 18 is almost as big as my house, but you know, it, it stores stuff that I don't want in my house. Why do I want a surfboard in my house or skis in my that's house? That's what it is. You just, really I was should. trying to think of some other crap I've seen. Yeah, surfboards. You guys got like three surfboards and they have them hanging from the roof in this. Tr You're like, oh my god, get a shed. Right or, or the the whitewater raft that was in one of them. You know, yeah. like, how many people store a whitewater raft in, in their, their house? house? It's just nonsensical, I you know, and it's also like the the trailer ones. They they're all this crap about where do we store it, and you're going, you know, it's on a trailer. There's all this space underneath it. You know what? If you were really, that's why I think it's all fake, right? Because you would just, you know what, dude, we're gonna skirt it and throw it under there. It's a it's a boat. It's a, it's okay that it's outside, right? Yes, right. <laughs> but, but I mean, I kind of like the way I think. I think that some people that might think they can't live this style could make it work. It's kind of a compound approach. So they build their little tiny house, and then into it, then they build something like you said, like a garage or a workshop. And then maybe they end up deciding, well, if I want to have guests, you build a really tiny, you know, like 60, 70 square foot guest cottage. It's just basically a place to sleep. 
And, and then it starts to like get kind of this community thing going on. And I think that can work for people. And I think that you could probably do all that and still spend less than some of these people do on these trailer projects. Yeah. Yep. I mean, you start out with a seven thousand dollar at least handicap when you start with a trailer project. So that's a so that's a lot of building materials. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of building materials. You know, um, you've you've been off grid for a long time now. Have you ever just thought, you know, what it would just be easier, especially since you're legal, to just bring a power line in? I might actually bring a power line in. Uh, now that you mention it, I uh, I was thinking about renting my place out to somebody, and I I don't think I convince anybody to use the off grid system. It's just too finicky for most normal people. So I might actually bring power in. Uh, I'm gonna have in order to do it, I have to trench 172 feet out to the road. Uh, and I might do it um, next year. I'm still sort of toying with the idea. It, that's not that big a job, depending on what you're dealing with. Like, is it rock? Is it dirt? You know, if you got three, three feet of dirt before you hit rock, and you don't have a lot of trees in the way, you can rent a, a trencher from like Lowe's or Home Depot. Yeah, I've got we have boulders. We have very big boulders uh, here. That's expensive. Deposits, so that could be interesting. Yeah, that's but. expensive then, because they'll. They'll want probably, I imagine in your climate, they'll want 36 inches of cover on electrical line, even though all the ones they put in are like freaking 10, 11 inches. I'm telling exactly. you. I, I, that, cause I, we used to do that work, and uh, when you're a contractor, they come out and they expect everything to specific cover levels and stuff like that. Um, but when you are doing work where there's already existing installations, right, you you call and they do locate so you know where the power service lines all are and almost every service line we ever exposed so that when we would drill under it or whatever was in the neighborhood of like 16 to 18 inches mm. and it, and and that's that's awful shallow for even service power it really is yeah yeah but it's the way they do it but when you do it they they want you to do it right it could be a lot worse. I, actually, a funny story. My neighbor uh, behind me, he's, he's 700 feet off the road, and he was, since I was thinking about doing it, he was saying, hey, you know, let's talk to the guy and see, he'll look at my house, and maybe I'll do it. And it turns out for him to do it, uh, they'll pay for the first 150 feet, and beyond that, it's $21 a foot. Mm. So his, his bill to get to 700 feet would have been almost $15,000 with taxes. Wow. And we started, you know, on the back of a napkin thinking, like, okay, what kind of off-grid power system can we make for, say, half that, 7,500? Yeah. And you can build a serious off-grid power system for 7,500 and not have an electric bill ever again. So it makes me wonder, like, is, you know, grid power even economical these days? It certainly isn't for him, you know. I think it depends on where you are. That's a, the kind of the math that Stephen Harris does all the time. And what he says is basically he thinks solar is terrible unless you need it, and then it's wonderful. Yes. And it's when the numbers work out that way that you're just like, the cost of doing this, I could have independence, and I wouldn't need that anymore. You know, And that's yeah. kind of how you make that decision. I think the other thing is, like living in really small homes makes it more practical because you need less energy. Yes, absolutely true. So um, you, uh, you wrote a book. Can we talk a little bit about your book? Yeah, sure. It's called yes. uh, Tiny House Engineer's Notebook Off-Grid Power. Yeah, I actually stole the idea. For, I don't know if you remember back in the day. Uh, I remember Radio Shack used to have these engineers' notebooks they have on the wall with little electronic circuits in them. Yep. It was uh, Forrest Mims III used to put these little books up at Radio Shack. And I, that's how I learned electronics was, you know, pulling, buying integrated circuits and, you know, copying the circuits out of that book. So I sort of stole his idea. And uh, the idea was really to just – one of the things I, I do, some of the tiny house uh, conferences that I've attended, some of them are actually hands-on workshops, and you work with people – 
And the first time I, I ever did it, we actually were showing, uh, we had a woman screw a screw into a board. And, you know, she didn't know how to do it. Like, you actually had to show her how to hold the drill, how to grip it, what technique to use. And you know what? It, it dawned on me that most people, uh, if they've never built, they don't know anything. They know absolutely nothing about electricity or building. And they need to be shown from, you know, from the, the most fundamental base up how to do this stuff. So imagine if you told, told somebody, hey, go measure the voltage on your car battery. Here's a d- digital voltmeter. What would you do? You open up the hood. Okay, where's the battery? I don't know what it looks like. What is this? What do I do with this digital voltmeter? What, what setting do I put it on? What do I do with the leads? You know, is it safe to touch the metal parts of them? Just all those questions. And so the, the book was written to start from sort of that really, really basic level and take you all the way up to, you know, understand many of the things that you need to know. Uh, yeah, I think if you're an point. Engineer, I mean, I'm just thinking when you're saying this, like, you and I are probably like the last generation where almost every boy that went to, to high school and junior high had shop classes. Yes. Like everybody took at least a shop class. Like you didn't have to, but you just, it ended up being, you know, you could take it from like junior high through high school. It was like six years and you would inevitably take metal shop or wood shop or something as an elective. And a, a lot of the schools have completely removed that unless you go into like the Votech thing. Yep. That's true. So they haven't even driven a nail. Yep. I mean, these days it's drama class, a drama shop or whatever they, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> No, I mean, I, I, we actually interviewed uh, a person for a, a job where, for, my, for the company I work for, for graphic arts. She actually goes to a Vogue school, even. And, uh, you know, her, her after-school electives were, you know, drama. And, you know, and she asked, well, can I, can I hold off taking the job for a couple of weeks? Because I'm in a play. I need time to be in the play. Like, you know. Wow. Uh, schools have really gone down from wow. when I used to go there. You know, I, I'm a little off topic here, but it, it kind of makes me feel like, like, if we're going to send children to basically captivity thir- for 13 years, um, for you know six to eight hours a day, that in that captivity they should actually learn relevant, useful skills, and and having a basic construction course as part of high school makes a hell of a lot more sense than like you know the, these high level calculus classes they try to shove every kid into anymore. Because well, you can use some of that in building trades. If you learned a little bit of that as part of a building course, it would actually have relevance. Like, that, I think that's a big problem. Kids, like, you tell this kid, you know, what is Y equal in this equation? The, the real answer, when the kids, if you let the kid be honest, I don't give a shit. Right? But <laughs> right. if you're trying to figure out how to build something, and then you see the practical application of the mathematical formula that works, and then we would just have people that could actually do stuff. And I'm yep. not saying everybody should be able to build a house, but, you know, I mean, you. I, you, I imagine you had shop class, you know, and you probably built what everybody builds in, like, their first shop class, a spice rack. Hey, Actually, you know what? What I had was a Vogue school, and uh, oh, okay. one of the, the, the best things that they ever did, and every many of my classmates who I've spoken to say the same thing. They, they put us through uh, each shop for one week, and we got to go in there, and one week we'd be in plumbing, and we'd sweat pipes together. Oh, that's week, awesome. You know, electrical, we'd do it. Everybody has said, you know what? The only reason I know how to change outlets in my house is because I took exploratory during, you know, freshman year of, of Vogue school, and it's it stayed with all of us. It's really, really valuable. Can't, that, can't underestimate it. That's what everybody should do. I mean, really. I mean, but what I was getting about is even the stupid little, you know, the spice rack. Well, you learn to use a bandsaw. You learn to finish wood. You learn to use a, a router, right? You learn to use basic hand tools with that. We did when I was, I think, my freshman year, we had to do a, uh, a production project. So once we did our, our individual project, then we had to come up with a project that, like, you had an eight-man team and everybody, like a factory, right? Ah. And we did a bread box, like a rolling desk-style bread box. And we learned a ton by doing that about, you know, laying the entire project out. 
And then, like, I took, like, they had a thing that you take shop for two years, and then you could be an apprentice, which was basically helping the teacher, which was hanging out down there and building stuff. And so, like, I built a gun cabinet that I sold for $1,200 my senior year. Wow. I bought my, you know, helped me pay for my first car, you know, <laughs> my first good car. My first car I bought with scrap copper, but that's a different story. Anyway, Rob, your, your book, one of the things I was looking at with your book is not only is it, like, for the layman, it seems like a really good way for um, the average person that doesn't know a bunch of stuff to not electrocute themselves and to have the confidence that they're not going to. Yep. It's true. It, it, it's also it's also written in a way that uh, I, people have very short attention spans these days. I I write websites for a living, and people just don't read. Like they just their attention span is just so short they can't read simple things like terms and conditions or whatever. So one of the things I wanted to do is make this read like a Twitter stream, a picture, two hundred characters, another picture, a few more characters, and also that so you just stop reading at some point and then pick it right back up again. One of my favorite little parts in your book, right? I'm looking at it right now. I laughed when I saw this first time. It said, Rodney the rodent might be hungry and think the insulation on your wire is food. He might be right. And then there's a little mouse there on the circuit, and he says, yum, 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 right? That gets people's attention. And it's not like reading a dry-ass, you know, book about just about wiring. And that's from a real-life experience, too, by the way. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't a piece of wire. It was actually the uh, propane hose from my propane tank to my gas grill a mouse went and started chewing through it and i was smelling propane whiffs of propane oh wow figure out where, where it was coming from it was actually a mouse that chewed the, uh, the propane hose we had one years ago when i was in cabling we had run some cable for uh fiber optic cable for the city of mckinney and they called up and we, they had like all their circuits down on this thing and we went out and started pulling tops off of the the handhold boxes and we found one and mouse had completely devoured uh, and it's Kev Kevlar reinforced, but it like chewed into it and started pulling the Kevlar out, and it made wow. a nest. And there was like a nest of a whole bunch of little baby mouses in there, and they had just tore the hell out of a fiber cable. That was expensive recovery, Bill. Yeah, they're they're amazing how uh, how much damage they can do. So that's you know that's something when you're off grid living, you you've got to think about is is you know rodent control, um, and it permeates all walks of life. I know Stephen Sobakayak kind of off the subject again, but. Uh, from the, the Miracle Orchard guy up in Canada, they put this, you know, beautiful nursery in to help build the orchard, and they had all these trees they were going to plant in spring, and spring came and all the trees were dead because the mouses ate all the roots. So, Ooh. you know, it's, Yikes. it's a, it's a thing that like, so that right there alone could, uh, could save you. So what's a, what's a rodent proofing strategy for your wiring? Yeah, you put in conduit. Yeah, okay. Put in conduit, or, uh, you know, flexible or rigid. What do they call it, Romex or whatever, the, well, Romex is, uh, the mice still tend to chew through the Romex if you have bad ones, but just the uh, the PVC rigid uh, okay. you know, plastic uh, conduit that you glue together, just like pipes. Yeah. That's that's pretty rodent-proof. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about, I don't know if that's what they call it, this the stuff that looks like, this just got wire and it's just got steel wrapped around it and it's flexible. Is that just called flex then? Yeah, I don't know what, I forget what they call that. Like, okay, that's what I was talking uh, about. What is it, non-metallic liquid-tight conduit or something? No, this is metal. This metal. Is like metal. Oh, that's, it's like a spiral. Uh, if you, it'll pull apart if you want to make something that, dangerous out of it. EMT. I think it's EMT. Is that's it. That's it. Yeah. So stuff like that, you know, and that's that's the something that somebody might think of cutting a corner on, but you know, it's, yeah. Once a rat or a mouse decides to eat it, and because they do like it for some reason, it's it's a weird thing. And I think when there's power on it, they like it more for some reason. Well, in the winter time, it's warm. If you're drawing sure. any kind of power through it, it's nice and warm for them, especially if they insulate around it. So. Yeah, we had another mouse problem one time. I came home from work, and there was um, a huge 
uh, puddle of water in the kitchen coming out of the laundry room. And I guess the mouse had got in the house and had no water. So it figured out where the water line going to the washer was, and it chewed a hole in the water line. This gets worse. Because it had chewed such a tiny hole in the water line, it looked to me like, oh, well, the water line just got a hole in it. I didn't know that the mouse did it. So I shut the you know the water off at the, the valve, and then I have to find a water line for this washer because they're all proprietary. You know, you can't just get any piece of hose and put it on there. So I have to. I finally found this part. I get it. I put it on there. Go to work. Come home the next day. Same exact thing, because it just like once it knew, it just went back and did it again. And then I finally figured out. Okay, we have a we have a a, a rodent problem here because I found some turds, you know. And then it was like, okay, I have to kill the mouse before we fix the washing machine again. But yeah, they're they're interesting. Um, what are maybe some of the biggest rewards you've gotten out of uh, living the way you do now? Uh, well, financial freedom is probably the number one. I you know I have no mortgage payment. Uh, my tax bill every year is now seven hundred bucks, something like that. Um, I'm also in one of the cheaper uh, towns in Massachusetts, so that, that's part of that. Uh, and just you know, freedom. I you know I. Just uh, I have a little house. I live in it, and uh, nobody tells me what to do. I'm in the middle of the woods. You know, it's uh, it's been uh, rewarding that way. I guess the other thing that's probably been nice is that I get to take advantage of some of the things in town. Like uh, before, I bought the property. I had no idea we had a snowmobile club, and we do. And it oh. turns out my property has a trail that goes right onto the snowmobile trail system. And so now I now I snowmobile. Uh, not last year, but the year before I did, and it was it was a lot of fun. And I'll hopefully do a lot of snowmobiling this year. Uh, ATB riding, you know, all that kind of stuff. So. That's been cool. Yeah, definitely. I mean, have you have you have have you attracted any like I say positive attention like from locals or whatever that like think what you're doing is cool? I mean, has it led to any kind of like uh, community type thing other than like the snowmobile thing you were just saying? Um, I definitely had some people stop by and take a look at it, and there are many. And first of all, everybody who's looked at it said, "Wow, that's really cool. I could live in that." Nobody's ever said, "Ooh, that's too small," because you know I, I built it. I think just the right size, so. That's good. We've had a little bit of negative attention, I would say, from a disgruntled contractor who saw that there's a video of my house online that Relax Shacks took, and they saw the video and they saw my loft and said, "Oh, that's not to code because there's no railing there," and they they basically reported it to the state and suggesting that the building inspector was on the take and all this kind of stuff. Holy and crap. Uh, but but that turned into a positive thing because I guess they uh, the meeting. They started talking about tiny homes, saying, you know what, these are coming. We need to figure out how we're going to, you know, handle the code situations around some of their things like stairs and yeah. lofts and so forth. And so it actually turned into kind of a positive thing in their meeting. Uh, and nobody's gotten fined or in trouble for it. So I guess that, that was good. But, you know, it's, it's definitely been noticed. People people do know that I'm the tiny house guy. When I, The first town meeting I walked into, as I walked past the table to sign in for the meeting, I heard somebody whisper, hey, that's the tiny house guy. You know, so they, <laughs> they knew who I was. So. Yeah. Have you heard from anybody like wanting assistance with, you know, planning their own projects or anything like that? I have spoken to people. I speak at uh, Porcupine Freedom Festival up in New Hampshire, the, the Free State Project thing. Um, and I do talk to people, give them advice. Um, I haven't actually helped anybody with it because I offer the advice. I offer to help, but a lot of people kind of want to do it themselves. It seems like it's a, it's a project that maybe you just want to do yourself, kind of a personal project for a lot of people. I think for some people, the, the whole allure is not just the result, but actually going out and building your own thing, kind of reconnecting with that pioneering attitude. Yes, I, I think that's very true. 
So um, I've noticed your book says the Tiny House Engineers Notebook Volume 1. Is there or will there be a Volume 2? I left myself the placeholder in case I want to do it. I'm, I very well may because there's a lot of things in code that uh, would be nice to interpret for people. Uh, I always try to make it simpler for them. Or things like installing wood stoves and you know plumbing and, and things like that. So I might I might do it. Depends uh, how bored I am. I mostly did it this year because we had such a bad winter that I couldn't snowmobile, and so I needed something, something to, to do. Something to do. So I wrote that. I've been saying I, I got to write this book. I got to write this book, and so I did it. Uh, over the winter so if we have another bad winter yeah there'll be a volume two probably next year (laughs) well yeah you could do that and you could also volume three could be actually more on the actual physical part of the construction right because this is this is all about uh electrical and i think that's something that maybe folks in the audience might want to realize is you don't have to be building a tiny house for this to be valuable this is really how to design and and build uh off-grid electrical systems this I, I could use this as I'm building off-grid components for uh, the aquaponics greenhouse that we're constructing right now. Yep. Or your chicken coop that needs to have an electric door opener. Yeah. Or or your yeah. RV if you want to make it solar-powered instead of shore-powered. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So do you have a website, or is this just, just on Amazon, what have you? It's on Amazon. I have the Tiny House Engineers Notebook is the, uh, the website. It's really a long domain, but it's there. Uh, there's actually a really cool feature on the website if uh, people are trying to plan for their own systems. There's a calculator that uh, takes all of your loads and you figure out how many minutes a day you're going to use them. And then you can enter in some parameters and it'll, it'll spit out how many amp hours of battery you need, how many solar panels you need. It's a nice little web app that's on that site. It's uh, Tiny House Engineers Notebook slash Calc. You can uh, go there and use it. I found it's, it. I'm going to make sure that's in the, uh, in the show notes today because that is cool. That's a, a really great... Uh, thing because that's probably the number one thing that people need both to get right and to have what you would call a reality check. And that is the number one question that is asked. Like, hey, I've got this battery. What can I run with it? How long is it going to run? And hey, yeah, there's a lot, a lot around it. So uh, I've got a battery. How much? Will, can it, not much and not long. <laughs> right. right. That, that's actually one of the motivations for writing the book too. I see yeah. so many people answering questions like, okay, I've got this 100 amp hour deep cycle marine battery. How long is it going to run my refrigerator? And then somebody goes back and answers the question. Like, yeah. well, how do you know how big the refrigerator is? You know, how, how much they're going to use it, what temperature it's going to be. And, like, you can't possibly answer that question, yet you just made yourself look like an expert and you're not. And somebody's going to go off and follow that advice and be buying batteries every six months. Yeah, because what is it? Is it, is it my, uh, yes, it's Energy Star, but it's, uh, you know, double door, bottom freezer, you know, huge, biggest one I can fit in my kitchen, honestly. Or is it, you know, the, uh, the dorm refrigerator that some guy's gone out and, and, uh, Triple insulated everything except the hot side of it uh, to make it uber efficient. Those yeah, are, now gonna, are you in Arizona and it's in your garage and it's the outside temperature is warm and that makes a huge difference too. Indeed, indeed. Um, so that's cool. So yeah, I found the website. I'll make sure that's in the show notes today. And uh, man, I appreciate you being with us on the air today. Thanks for having me on. Well, great to hear from Chris again, and it's nice to hear from people that are actually doing these things and living the life, not just theorizing on them. And this is again a guy that's been in and around and living the tiny house life for eight years, and he's proven that it works for him. I know on some other shows, especially with Gary Collins, I've mentioned how I don't I don't get it, and I even restated that today, but that doesn't mean that I don't think it works. I mean, what I don't, I don't get it for me. I look at these tiny houses, and I think, that's not enough space for me. I want more space. I, you know, I think about the fact that my office is a little bit cramped with all the stuff that I keep in my office to be able to produce my show, and my office is like uh, 10 by 12. 
and that's just one room in my house. And I think to myself, self, would you really want to give up all of this equipment that you use to like make a living? And myself says, no, dummy, then you couldn't make a living. I'm just saying. But it doesn't mean that I don't think it, it works really well for certain people in certain situations. And I personally like the compound approach. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Um, if you did and you want to support the show so you can have more shows like this, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. If you do that, uh, you, all you got to do is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of great places. I'm working one right now. I don't want to jinx it by saying what it is. But I have a feeling we're going we're gonna to get this one for you. And I'll just say those of you that want to grow fish, this would be a great discount. If you wanted to grow tilapia and set up aquatic systems, aquaponic systems, I'm I'm working on it. Okay, I'm doing my best. I'm going to try to add three or four really good, uh, unique companies to the MSB this year and through the rest of the, the the you know this last part of the year, and I uh, see what I can do. But if I can get you guys a discount on uh, all the equipment you need, plus you know fish, wouldn't that be cool? I'm trying, guys. I'm trying. But that's the thing I do, man. I work for you guys when you don't know I'm doing it to negotiate these deals. At this point, I've negotiated over 65 discounts for members of the Survival Podcast. You can learn more, again, the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. The other way to support my show, the really simple, easy way to support my show, is to go to the survivalpodcast.com. And, uh, I'm sorry, just go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, or you can go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on tspaz, and uh, do all your Amazon shopping through my link. That doesn't mean you spend any extra money. That doesn't mean you really do anything uh, that you have to go out of your way for. In fact, you type in tspaz.com, go there, you can see the item of the day and stuff like that, or you can just click through to Amazon and buy whatever you're going to buy that day and support the show. If you like the show, if you want the show to be around, and you're thinking, I'd like to support what Jack's doing, but you know, I, I don't have the money to join MSB or, or what have you, or I've already done that, but I'd like to do something else, or I'm a life member, so I don't I don't contribute you know financially fo- forward. So what can I do? Well, just shop at tspaz.com. Today's uh, item of the day is uh, a really, really cool thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, I've kind of rediscovered my love of air rifles, and... Uh, what I have for you today are the Jumbo Monster Diablo pellets in uh, 22 caliber. These are 25.39 grain pellets. A typical 22 caliber pellet will weigh in at like 14 to 15 grains. They make them a 177 as well. Those are 13.43 grains. And typical uh, 177 caliber pellet weights are like 7 to 8 grains. Uh, they're just awesome. You can read the write-up if you want to. Uh, I think they are a great hunting pellet. I have one comment already from someone that says, basically, you shouldn't shoot these things in uh, in spring or gas ram guns. Uh, they can damage the mechanism. They're not going to damage the mechanism. They're, they're just not. And I'll tell you, maybe they could uh, put extra wear and tear on the gun if you fought, shot you know, lots of them through the gun. These are hunting pellets. These are hunting pellets. Uh, so they're, they're not something that you're going out plinking cans with. This is something you're using when you're taking out a raccoon or a squirrel. And let me tell you, boy, howdy, do they work good for that. Boy, do they work good for that. Uh, you might want to check them out. If not, remember, you can always do your, uh, your, your shopping at Amazon by going to T-Spaz first, and you can help support the show no matter what you buy. For everything uh, you buy, you can buy cheese, you can buy dog diapers, you can buy whatever you want. If you're going to buy it anyway, buy it through T-Spaz. That brings us up to our final uh, segment today, the song of the day. And 
I was trying to think of something to go along with like the tiny house thing, you know, and I thought about little boxes from the weeds. Remember that? I already played that, and that really didn't fit, you know, other than it is the complete opposite of, you know, tiny house living. And I was thinking about how when, you know, I had this conversation with Chris, it's such a simple life. And I, I, I you know, even though I don't want a particularly tiny house, uh, simplifying has always been something that I really, really uh, find appealing. And we have different ways that we simplify it. It made me think back to uh, to Jessica uh, Mills having Jessica on to talk about three, through hiking the uh, Appalachian Trail, and how she talked about you know living six months on the trail, you realize how much you don't need, and uh, you live a much simpler life. And people really, I think people are really going to like this episode, and I think people really liked. I've heard from a lot of people that really liked that episode. By the way, Jessica is going to teach at the October workshop here at TSP Ranch Nine Mile Farm uh, on uh, lightweight backpacking. She's going to do a gear breakdown, go through all of her gear, and show uh, how, how it's all set up and used. And also, uh, if you want to learn more about that, come to the, the workshop. But just think of the simpler thing. And I didn't really find a song that fit like the concept of simple life, right? But as I was looking through things, I started you know reminiscing and looking through some of the George Jones stuff and then... All of a sudden, I see Willie Nelson, so I click on Willie Nelson, and then I, because you know, you see the related videos, and I see this related video, that's Willie Nelson and Ray Charles singing Seven Spanish Angels. And the video is actually the first time they played it together publicly. It's a live video. I have the audio for it from you today. And what I thought about, going back to simple, is this music is as simple as music gets. It's some accompanying musicians and two guys with a piano singing really, really soulful music as though it is a story that they're attached to. They bring the complexity to this. And I, I would I would reckon that almost every single person in this audience at one time or another, at least in passing, has heard the song Seven Spanish Angels. But I believe there's probably a lot of people out there that have never actually listened to it. We can hear things and we can listen to things, and those two things are not always the same. We always hear what we listen to, but we don't always listen what we hear. Listen to what we hear. Well, if you listen to this song today, and you really listen to the way that it's sung, the passion it's sung with, and if you listen to the story it tells, it will flat out put the hairs up on your arms. And there's a lesson in that, beyond just beautiful, simple music. The simple things in life can do the best things for us if we properly apply them. I imagine if I sat down at a piano and I sung Southern Spanish Angels, well, uh, I'd probably ruin the song for you forever, okay? Because it's not what I'm good at. We're all good at certain things, and it's finding those things and marrying them with simplicity that's a big part of our lifestyle design so we can live that life that we want to live. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Said, say a prayer for me. She threw her arms around him, whispered, God will keep us free. They could hear the riders coming. He said, This is my last fight. If they take me back to Texas, they won't take me back alive. 
There were seven Spanish angels at the altar of the sun. They were praying for a lover in the valley of the gun. When the bell stopped and the smoke cleared, there was thunder from the throng. Seven Spanish angels took another angel home. And she reached down and picked the gun up that lay smoking in his hand. She said, Father, please forgive me. I can't make it without my man.